I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Calmer Cornheads. For more information about Calmer Cornheads, visit them at calmercornheads.com. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-C-O-R-N-H-E-A-D-S.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. A transplant from the Netherlands, conservation consultant Hans Koch has a unique perspective on no-till systems in the U.S. and beyond. Having worked with farmers in Washington State, Spain, Indiana, and more, he has a hands-on understanding of what farmers are doing to make no-till work in their environments. He's a frequent presenter at agricultural meetings, including our own national no-tillage conference. In this episode, Hans joins no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter for an exploratory conversation about what it takes to farm slopes versus flat ground, making money while using cover crops, why no-till hasn't been adopted widely in certain areas, how no-tillers could get by without glyphosate, and much more. So let's go. Here are Frank Lesseter and Hans Koch. All right. This morning, we're talking with Hans Koch, who is in Indiana, around Indianapolis. And instead of me telling you what he's doing, I'm going to ask you what you're doing, Hans. What's your current position? All right. I'm Hans Koch. I'm an independent conservation consultant based out of Carmel, Indiana. And uh, some of the contracts I work on with the Indiana State Department of Agriculture on a large nutrient management program for farmers. Uh, I also um, work with the Conservation Technology Information Center in West Lafayette, and I manage some large grants for them. And I do uh, field days, and I do winter meetings for people on topics ranging from no-till to cover crops to soil health, and sometimes talking about the Netherlands, where I grew up. All right. Uh, one of the reasons we're talking to you this morning is because you've had uh, experience both in the Corn Belt in Indiana and uh, in the Palouse area of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. And we'll get into that later. But you mentioned you came from the Netherlands. Tell me about the little background and the history of you and your family and how you got to the U.S. Okay, the standard answer is how did I get to the U.S. is, of course, airplane, but uh, <laughs> I was an exchange student, and uh, and this was in the pre-9-11 days, and I was working on my graduate degree. Um, I finished that graduate degree and got an invitation to stay in the United States. I was at Washington State University. I was a grad student there for a number of years. I worked as a postdoc there, then I worked for Kansas State University for uh, about eight years as an extension specialist in no-till in soil and water conservation. Uh, then I worked for Monsanto for about seven years, again as a no-till specialist most of that time and uh, went back to the University of Idaho and Washington State University, had an interesting joint appointment between the two schools, and uh, worked for uh, soil and water conservation again, but also on uh, bioenergy. And about 10 years ago, I decided to go independent and moved back to Indiana and uh, became the independent crop consultant. And uh, some of the things I've done here was help start up the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative which is a large uh, educational effort in Indiana. And I also helped start up the Soil Health Partnership with the National Corn Growers. 
Well, it's interesting that you had this joint appointment at Washington State and University of Idaho, and I think a lot of our listeners don't realize that these two land-grant colleges or universities are only about six or eight miles apart. That's right. They're nestled against the Washington-Idaho border, and they're right next to each other, and they have a lot of exchange programs. So as a student, when I was there, I would take classes on both sides of the border. And when I worked for the extension service there, I had an office at Idaho, uh, but I also spent quite a bit of time at Washington State University, and I covered both states for uh, soil and water conservation and for biotech for uh, um, biotech crops or, or energy crops. Yeah. So tell me about your experiences with no-till here in Kansas and in the Corn Belt and with Monsanto before you went out west. So I think maybe one of the first times I met you may well have been at one of the very first national no-tillage conferences. Yes, yes, I imagine that's what it was. So I grew up in the Netherlands, which is a flat country and not much erosion going on. And moldboard plowing is a pretty common practice because it's a cold and wet climate. And people mm. kind of get away with it. It's very high organic matter soils. And oftentimes they get away with that. And then I moved to the United States and where we have the intense rainstorms, we have the rolling slopes, and stuff doesn't work that way. At, when I was in Holland, I worked in Spain and uh, on a couple of erosion projects, and that's where I, for the first time, saw a very hard rainstorm. Because in Holland, when it rains hard, you get about a quarter inch an hour, and people think it's a downpour. Mm. And uh, we, we just had seven or about three, four inches here in an hour again uh, last week in Indiana. So very different climatic conditions. So when I went to the Palouse of Washington State, um, that's a steep rolling landscape. Uh, they have a Mediterranean climate. Most of the rain, like 80% of it, falls in the wintertime. And then the crops basically grow on stored soil water. So these soils are deep. They're lush soils. And they can hold enough water to get a wheat crop to go all the way into uh, July, August. But it doesn't rain basically between April and August. Right. So it, it's a it's a very different climatic uh, situation. Of course, in the Midwest, we get about 80% of our precip in the growing season, and it doesn't come like nice drizzly rain like it does in the Palouse or like snow. It comes uh, and more and more it comes as these gully washers that we need to somehow not get into the ground and grow our crops on. But in the Palouse area, even though they have dry summers, their yields, like wheat yields, are sky high to what we get in the Midwest, aren't they? Yes, the temperatures stay lower. So the, the wheat uh, crop has probably a yield potential of between 150 and 200 bushel to the acre in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. That never happens in the field. Um, so we, in, in the state of Washington, it totally depends on the rain. So uh, they have a very steep rainfall gradient close to the Cascade Mountains. They only get about six, seven inches of rainfall a year. So yields are very low and a lot of irrigated agriculture. But by the time you get to the Washington-Idaho border, you get more like 20 inches of rainfall a year, and people will grow 120 bushel wheat on that. Um, that is mainly because the temperatures stay low, so the crop can really do the kernel fill, and um, the temperatures usually go 80 to 100 degrees with very low humidity, so diseases are less of an issue out there than they are here in the Midwest. Now, wheat yields in the Kansas and the Midwest can be very high, too. Uh, I remember living at Kansas State one year, and it was a very cool summer, and we had quite a bit of rainfall, and wheat yields all went to 90 bushel to the acre, although the state average at the time was under 40. 
So it's totally dependent on the weather and basically the climate on how much of that crop you can grow. The crop has the potential to go high, just like corn does. Uh, you and I both know from the National uh, Corn Growers Yield Contest every year that corn probably has a yield potential somewhere in the seven, 800 bushel range. And sometimes farmers make the 600 bushel if you really, really pamper it and the weather cooperates with you. But the 300 bushel corn yields are really pretty much where we max out in Indiana under most years. So going back to the Palouse, you'll have people like John Ashelman, Russ Zenner, and others who've got land that's pretty high up. Well, John's got some river bottom land, so there's a huge difference in the yield potential between these areas, right? Right, right, right. So the, yeah, the elevation differences are dramatic out there. There's like a 2,000 feet drop uh, at the edge of the Palouse where they go into the Snake River Valley. And in the bottom is a totally different climate than on top. But most of that farmland is around two, 3,000 feet elevation. They get long, long winters, so it's much cooler. And then they get with a lot of snow. And then they get uh, a lot of drizzly rain around that. And uh, yeah, in the valley, it's, it's easily 20, 30 degrees warmer at certain days. The big difference between this land is the amount of precipitation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, there's areas that are totally arid and other areas that uh, that get, like I said, about 20 inches of rain a year or so. Right. But the landscape itself is really what is uh, interesting. It is a dune landscape, but not a sand dune. It's a dirt dune landscape. So these are loose soils, and uh, they're very good soils, very, uh, very good in water holding capacity, very fertile because they're mixed in with volcanic ash from the ancient times when big volcanoes like Mount St. Helens would blow on a regular basis. And these soils are under slopes as high as 45% being farmed. Now, to give you an indication, that's about the stairwell in your house. That's how steep that is. And people are still farming those. And if you're not careful with those soils, even with the mild rains they get, the amount of erosion is completely horrendous. So you got to be very careful. And that's why no-till, and they call it direct seed, is really such a big thing out in the Palouse. Right. I remember years ago being down in uh, central Illinois, I think it was at Jim Kinsella's place on a bus tour, and we were going along, and somebody who's moderating the group for the bus says, look at the, he says, this slope out here. And the people on the bus said, where's the slope? Where's the slope? And he said, well, there is a 1% slope here <laughs> yeah. compared to 40% in the Palouse. So when you were selling no-till in the Palouse, what were the big problems. I mean, you got terrific erosion in some places when you're using conventional tillage. Yeah, I, there's pictures of me standing in erosion gullies that come almost up to my shoulders, and I'm six and a half foot tall. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those are those are big, and that can happen over one winter, because the soils are very erodible. Um, the problem with the early no-till was we had some people uh, trying no-till in the 70s, and maybe even before, Guy Swanson and guys in the, in, in the Palouse and Mort right. Swanson Mort, yeah. uh, were doing, they were doing uh, a no-till. But uh, because of the climate, the fall is extremely dry. And so it's very hard to get your seed into the ground and preferably deep enough into the ground that it actually can have access to some moisture. And so they tried to do it by weight. So they had double disc openers and they just started piling on the way to get those things in the ground. But you were basically trying to plant in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. And the wheat was planted on seven or 10 inch centers 
and they were trying to put fertilizer down at the same time. So you had an enormous amount of gear going through a very, very hard soil. And so that was a real challenge. The guys got it done with this big yielder drills. And that is, if you have never seen a yielder drill upright, I don't know how many of those are still around, but man, that is so impressive. You're on a 30% slope, and here is this enormous block of metal going across the slope with a 500-horse tractor in front of it. it. It's something else. When that was successful, but it was hard and a lot of equipment and very expensive, so some other guys looked at it a little differently, and they started what uh, what we call now hoe drills, where you didn't use double-disc openers or single-disc openers. They used a hoe to break through that uh dry ground, as narrow as narrow a possible slot, and then drop the, the seat in the bottom of that slot, and hopefully close enough to moisture. That's deep. It's, it's an inch, maybe sometimes two inches deep you plant that, and then hopefully that seed will get to moisture, and as soon as the rain starts, the wheat comes up and uh, makes it to the surface. On those slopes, that can, can be a real issue. So what the most folks do with that, with a hoe drill, is you make it a one-pass operation, hence the name uh, direct seed. So after harvest, you don't do anything. Uh, you leave the ground alone. And then after August or so, and then when you come in in September, October, to plant your next wheat crop, uh, you come in with that hoe drill, and that'd be the first tillage pass in that field, and you have not touched it. And hopefully you can keep the erosion at bay and get the crop up and going. Now, some guys from New Zealand came out with a totally different system uh, to try that. They wanted to go back to this no-till, and they have a system called the cross-slot drill, which is a one-disc opener, right. a large serrated disc with little wings on the side. And on the one side, you have a wing that puts fertilizer down. On the other side, you have a wing that puts the seed down. And that is the only true no-till system I've seen in that region where they can go through a field, you only see tire tracks, you don't even see where the, the wheat was planted, and that way you will not have erosion in those fields and uh, your wheat crop comes up nicely through that slot that you've created. So interesting, very different than what we are doing in the Midwest here. So when we talk about these yielder drills, the weight, how much weight was on them? I, I can't remember well, 20 tons, but am I wrong? Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. And then we have some uh, very interesting pictures of farmers in Canada who had two of those things in a big Y tandem uh, arrangement behind uh, their six, 700 uh, horsepower tractors going over much flatter soil than the blues. And they were right. able to no-till these plains in Alberta and stuff and at very high clip to get that many feet of uh, drill through there. Yeah, they were enormously heavy. I thought it was a great success to see how they got the crops in the ground and got erosion under control. Right. That was a huge step forward. Because there are still people there, not necessarily moldboard plowing, but doing enough tillage on those fields to create enormous amounts of erosion. And of course, that is a total waste. Those are really, really good soils. Uh, I think the Palouse has lost like 80% of their topsoil over over the years of farming. You can see, you really see where, what, what tillage did to that is that some of the fence lines that uh, people have on those fields, where one person would start plowing the top of the hill and plow down and then stop at the fence line. And then uh, the next uh, landowner would start below the fence line. And some of those fence lines over the years have gotten to be 20, 30 feet tall just because of the amount of dirt that was moved uh, down the hill. Right. 
And I've seen pictures where the county road commissioners were scraping uh, topsoil off the road so people could get through. Yeah, that is interesting. I've had some conversations with the road department of the county I lived in at the time, and those guys knew exactly who was no-tilling. Because <laughs> they say, we, we, we mess up, we, we clean up the roads. They had that one county alone at like a million and a half at the time. This is in the 1980s. million and a half dollar uh, road cleaning budgets to, to clean out the ditches. Right. And and they would clean off the roads and the ditches because the amount of mud coming down the hills is just horrific. And uh, then you have to go somewhere with all that stuff that you pick up. But they say, when we would go to get to a no-till farm, we'd load all the stuff back up and we'd drive a mile or so and then we unload it again and start cleaning road again. So these yeah. guys knew firsthand how effective these erosion control methods like no-till and direct seeding work. I was in the Palouse one time in uh, early June, and we were on some old roads where conventional minimum tillage was being used, and the road was covered with um, mud, and it rained, and it was like ice. The, the, we had some trucks, and the trucks were just spinning their wheels. Yeah, that soil, that lost soil, gets extremely slick. Most of the roads there, it's, it's very sparsely populated area. Most of the, the, the not county roads are uh, dirt roads. And in the summer, that's fine. They're dusty, but they're all passable. But yeah, they get wet and you're absolutely right. Uh, we didn't call it ice, but uh, yeah, it's, it's very hard to, to drive on those things. So when we talk about uh, having lost a lot of this topsoil, it's kind of unbelievable how deep these topsoils are on some of those uh, hills, right? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. So these soils were all blown in place, and because that didn't happen in one big blow, the geologists can actually start digging in these soils and figure out when it, just like the rings on a, on a tree, they can figure out when it was blown in. And I, I did some aerial photography for uh, some of the geology and soils departments to help them with those studies where they, they have road cuts in some of those hills and you can see all the deposition in periods. So after every volcanic eruption, there's a white layer in there for the ash. So they can date a lot of these soils and when they were deposited. But you can see that, that the, after the last ice age, there was a period of heavy deposition there. That was a nasty place to be. That was just like the, the super dust bowl when all that stuff was deposited out there. And the amount of erosion you can take off in one year is basically what was deposited over hundreds of years there. And some of these soils, they have so many deposits, they're known soils to be 40 plus feet deep. Now, that is the whole lust profile. And then in that lust profile, of course, you had uh, topsoil developing. There's not all that much topsoil left in the Palouse. Most of that has eroded off and was deposited in a lot of the valleys. But uh, so most farmers are actually getting those 100 and 120 bushel wheat yields of the subsoil. Now, in the Midwest, that is usually a heavy clay that the glaciers deposited out there. In the Palouse, it's just more layers of lust that did not get a topsoil in there. But with the no-tillers out there, we have seen that they started building topsoil again at a pretty hefty clip, kind of like Carlos Corvetto was doing in Chile, where he, mm -hmm. with, with 40 years of no-till, was able to get like inch and a half, two inches of totally new topsoil in his lifetime. We've seen guys like John Ashleman and Russ Center and some of the other farmers out there do exactly the same thing. So they can build those topsoils back up, and it helps a lot in protecting that soil and stopping erosion. Uh, but, yeah, it takes a 
big effort and again very different climatic conditions than we have here in the Midwest. So historically the Palouse would uh, raise a wheat crop and in some areas would fallow that ground and not uh, plant it the following year which must have led to tremendous erosion and then no-till kind of let them go to continuous cropping right? That's right. So there's a zone between the Cascades and the Rocky Mountains, or the foothills to the Rocky Mountains, where you get about 12 inches, 9 inches of rainfall, and that in most years is not enough to grow a crop on. So um, what what those guys did was the fallow system, exactly like you described, but in order to keep the weeds down, because the weeds were using up the stored water, of course, right. is they used, they used tillage. And they call it dust mulch. And in a windy climate like they have there in in the Palouse, uh, you can only imagine what that creates. So you have a lot of dust blowing around. You have a lot of erosion going on when it starts raining, or especially when the soil starts thawing out in the springtime from the winter freeze. And because we have steep slopes, so yeah, now that we have chemical ways of controlling wheat, uh, use of cover crops, and 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 different farm equipment, people have been able to grow crops on an annual basis rather than uh, having to fallow every other year. Now, that doesn't work every year, but in most years that works. And uh, that is really an incredible advantage to the soils, of course, and also for the economy of the farmers living there. Right. One other thing I'd like to talk about the Palouse, and then we'll move back farther east, was give us an explanation of Greenbridge that Jim Cook kind of pioneered. And then I want to ask you the question is whether we have any green bridge in the Midwest or can it be a concern with cover crops? I am so glad you asked that, Frank, because when I moved back to the Midwest, I just panicked when I heard about these cover crops and I go like, oh, you're going to get in trouble. But so what Greenbridge is, what Jim Cook and the guys from ARS at uh, Pullman figured out is that in some cases, the wheat crop looked really sickly and, and didn't want to come out of the ground very good. And it took them a, a number of years to figure out that it had to do with volunteer wheat. So wheat that just came out the back end, back end of the combine and wasn't controlled. And then you planted your next wheat or barley crop in there. Those crops really looked sickly and, and didn't do well. And they couldn't figure out if it was water robbing. And then eventually they figured out it was bacteria that live in the soil and, and other organisms in the soil that uh, make the new wheat uh, sick and that, that basically attack the roots of the new wheat because they jump from the old wheat to the new wheat. So if you had a green bridge, as they called it, between two crops, that uh, the diseases uh, were able to jump that gap. Now, if you would spray out the volunteer wheat like two or three weeks before you planted your new, that was enough to break that green bridge and not have those effects on the crops. And uh, I forget the names of all the diseases that are associated with that. But when I came to the Midwest, I called some plant pathologists and I said, hey, do we have these, these, and these bacteria in the soil? And they said, oh yeah, we have a lot of those. So I was really worried about green planting and all that kind of stuff. But keep in mind, our climatic conditions are very different from what they are in the Palouse. Uh, they're cool. In September, it can be in the 40s and 50s already. So when the wheat goes in, it's cool and wet. It's their rainy season. And uh, when, when the crop is trying to get up through the green leftovers from the last crop, that's a perfect environment for diseases to, uh, to live. So that was the Green Bridge by uh, Jim Cook. Are we going to see more no-till keep expanding the, in the Palouse or not? 
I have not been back there, quite frankly, uh, Frank, for a while. But when I was there, we had a slow growth of that. We had the Pacific Northwest Direct Seat Association, which is their local no-till group. Right. Very successful. Very successful. Uh, They did some very innovative programs um, together with the Department of Environmental Quality in the state of Washington. And they basically got these no-tillers certified that they were doing good things for the environment. And that safeguarded them from future legislation, uh, if ever anything would come down the pike about uh, soil water pollution or chemical runoff. These guys were already certified that they were doing the technically best possible solution uh, at at the time. So uh, that got a lot of people interested in that. Uh, They did cost share programs like we did here. And those were less successful because um, you need to put a lot of dollars to the acre to really make those work. But the growth, uh, I don't know. Uh, we, of course, the conserva- that's interesting. I work with Conservation Technology Information Center right now because they used to do these soil surveys or those, right. those crop surveys where four people would get in a car and they drive a pre-measured transact and they look out the car every half or every quarter mile and determine whether what there was no-till, what crop there was out there, what other tillages were done. And a lot of places are still doing it, and they also record now what cover crops are out there. So very interesting um, way of collecting that data, and it's very expensive, very time-consuming. I did it for about five years when I was back in Idaho, Washington, um, and it, it was pretty sta- pretty stagnant at the time. Um, interesting, just like we see here in the Midwest, the worse the soil, the more no-till. And that took me a long time to figure that out, but on soils that are not quite as good, no-till really pays off in a hurry, and you don't have much of an alternative because you won't have much soil left if you don't. On the very fertile, deep soils, flat soils, you get away with a lot of icky stuff like moldboard plowing and tillage and stuff, and we saw the same thing. In the Palouse, the central part of the Palouse has these very, very thick soils and less no-till adoption, less direct seeding. You go to the edges of the Palouse where you start to get into rocky undergrounds and all that stuff. And there we had a huge adoption of no-till and, and cross-slot drill and uh, hoe drills. So, uh, But I think it's, it was pretty stagnant at the time, but honestly I have not looked into that the last couple of years, what's happening in the trends out there. Luckily, we may be getting new systems in place to easily manage that, and that is use of satellite imagery, and uh, hopefully we'll have a system in place here within the next year, maybe two, where we can actually track uh, the adoption of no-till, cover crops, and all that in a much easier way, and do it almost automated through satellite imagery. We'll rejoin Frank and Hans in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Why pay the high price for a new cornhead when you can yield better results at a fraction of the cost by upgrading your current head with Calmer Cornheads BT Chopper Stock Rolls? As the only stock roll in the industry with a patented feeding chamber in combination with 10 razor-sharp knives, BT Choppers cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for faster decomposition, easier planting, and higher yields. Solve your cornhead problems for good and place your order today by calling 309-629-9000 or visit their website at calmercornheads.com. 
before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. Ever wonder what your topsoil is really worth? Topsoil selling at a Wisconsin garden store in the area around Milwaukee where we live is normally priced today at around 40 cents a pound. At a soil loss rate of as much as 200 tons per acre on hills being conventionally tilled, that's $160,000 in lost income due to excessive soil loss. So you've been back in the Midwest now about 10 years? That's right, about 10 years. So what do you see happening with no-till in the eastern Corn Belt or the western Corn Belt or Kansas, whatever? Well, in Kansas, uh, I was fortunate in the early 90s to be part of a group that started a, a little no-till meeting called No-Till on the Plains. Right. And that thing, that thing went completely out of hand on us. The first year, we had hoped <laughs> for 100 farmers, and we had 300. And then we thought, well, guys, we need to double the door price. Otherwise, the uh, people uh, or the, the entry price, because otherwise we can't handle this thing. And the number of people doubled. So and that's been consistently running over a thousand attendees every year and uh, for the last 30 years now. So um, that has really helped get a lot of information out there. We were pretty successful with uh, water conservation, especially in the drier regions of Kansas, as a tool to sell no-till. That's the main reason a lot of people did that, kind of like in uh, Washington State where the fallow came out because they were doing no-till. The same thing happened in western Washington, Oklahoma, and Nebraska, where farmers could actually continuously crop or almost continuously crop instead of having a fallow system. On the wetter sides of the state, of course, there was more erosion, and um, that's always a harder sale. But once we got systems figured out, then we could show the economics of them to farmers. Uh, adoption went pretty good there. Uh, again, I have not kept up on the numbers for Kansas. Uh, I think they're also pretty stagnant about the, the number of no-till acres they have, but a lot of people, when cover crops came out, started doing a lot less tillage or went to no-till. And that, that has made a change again. Cover crops made that transition to no-till much easier and a lot less costly. Uh, in the early days, we were always saying it takes you five or six years before your soil changes enough that the whole system falls in place again. You have to have it under control. Uh, I think with cover crops, that cuts it down to either no no changes in the system. Immediately with cover crops, you can no-till um, and, and have very few issues. And um, so that that's happened in Kansas, just like it did here in uh, in Ohio and and, and uh, Indiana. Well, it's interesting you mentioned no-till on the plains because it's a group that's been around a long time and they're still doing very well. Then you you go up in another organization that was really strong earlier was the Mandeck uh, No-Till Association, which was Manitoba and North Dakota. And right. That, and that one is actually folded up because of some problems they had. I think one of the problems they have you don't have in Kansas is they had to go across the border after members were in Canada, it got tougher to get across the border, and then the devaluation or the change between the two currencies had an effect. But at the same time, I think maybe they were so successful that people got to thinking, well, I know as much as I need to know about these practices. I don't know what the answer is, but they folded that organization about a year ago. Yeah, that was sad. Uh, yeah. That was a great, great group. And actually, a little bit the same happened here in Indiana. We had a group of Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and Ontario farmers getting together on an annual basis. 
mm-hmm. uh, to talk about no-till. And of course, that's all centered around Lake Erie with its horrific water quality problems. Right. And uh, that group has kind of gone by the wayside too. Uh, it, it had to do with the organizers getting older and getting out of farming. But you're right, and there was some border issues there too. Um, but I think, Frank, that's in general. When when people don't go to field days like they used to. In Kansas, we put on field days in the 1990s, and it was very common to get 400, 500 people to a field day. And if we put a big one together to go over 1,000, the farmers showing up on a field day. And these are people had to drive huge distances to get to these field days. People would come from the surrounding states. Now you go to field days, man, if we go over 100, we're all tickled <laughs> that, uh, that, that's, uh, that many people show up for field day. I think the Internet has changed a lot. People can get their information in different ways. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, that's one reason why those organizations are maybe not as successful as they were. But in the meantime, so those big organizations may be going to the wayside. I see small organizations popping up everywhere here. I know all sorts of clusters of farming, farmers who get together at least once a year with 20, 30, 40 farmers who are all like-minded. Right. And they meet at a farm and they get together and they discuss the issues at their level. So these are all folks that are experienced no-tillers, experienced cover croppers. They're very much into the technology uh, and they're trying eccentric new things that the mainstream farmers wouldn't even want to touch. Some of those groups are playing with organic farming. So it's a different model because they can stay in touch so easily through the Internet, with video conferencing and everything else. They only get together once or twice a year and still exchange a lot of information. Interesting is that in those groups, oftentimes, extension, university extension is not involved. NRCS is not involved. It's farmers with consultants and sometimes invited speakers doing those meetings themselves. Right. And instead of driving an hour to some large meeting that's organized by uh, by Extension or NRCS. Now, around the cover crops, we've had some uh, large, large field days again here in Indiana for a number of years. And uh, we also have a lot of training sessions going on where we actually teach people much more than just a field day, classroom type settings. And quite a few people show up for those as well. So it yeah. depends on what you offer and, and how you do it. Well, we've been pretty successful with our National No Toys Conference. It's coming up. Oh, my gosh. Have you ever? <laughs> 27th year. And uh, the first year we thought we might, if we got lucky, we might have 300 people, and we ended up with 800. And um, the, the smallest attendance we've had in 27 years is, I think, about 650, and we have had as many as 1,300. But we hang in there, but it's it's just like you say, these are people who are innovators. They got a chance to come there and swap ideas with people who are doing some of the same things they're doing and learn from them. So what I have to say about the National No-Till Conference, one of my favorite meetings every year still, uh, when you asked at the last No-Till Conference here, who is here for the first time? Right. It was between between a quarter and a thirty percent of the audience. That was the first time. I think that is absolutely awesome that you guys can attract this new generation, this new group of people that are just getting into the no-till, while there are folks there that have been to all twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven of them. Right. And so that is the beauty of that meeting. There's an exchange between farmers going on, but again, that is a farmer exchange mainly. Yes, there are scientists there, there are foreign speakers there. I talked there as an extension specialist at the time, 
and now as a consultant, but it, it, it's very different than uh, the, the setup of your traditional extension meeting. And I think that's one of the strengths of your um, of your conference. And I really applaud you guys for what uh, Lasseter Publications has done for the no-till movement in the United States. And by the way, Frank, you're not paying me for this, uh, so that is my personal opinion, and I, I really appreciate what you guys have done. Well, thank you. Uh, I, a story goes back here maybe 10 years or so ago, and in, in late August, I took a phone call from somebody who was registering for the National No-Tillage Conference. And so I said to him, geez, I feel kind of bad because I, we don't have the program done yet. And uh, I can't tell you who the speakers are going to be. And he said to me, I don't care. I said, what, what do you mean you don't care? He says, look, I've been a couple times. I know you'll have a good program. But even if you have what I think is a horrible, horrible program, I'm still coming because I, I'm i coming for the networking in the halls with other no-tillers. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. And Frank, I know very few other conferences where you start at 8 in the morning, sometimes well before 8 in the morning, and then 10 o'clock at night you close it up. And the rooms are chock full of people. Yeah. And I've, everybody comes back from lunch in time, and every session is out the door. It, yeah, it's amazing. People really, really love this conference like I do. And you always learn new things, whether it's in the hallway talking to this little group of farmers or to this one person, or whether it's a, a session where an, a researcher or, or another farmer talks about what they figured out. It, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful mix. We mentioned cross slot earlier, and they're looking at cross slot in the Midwest for corn. Will it work? Will it be popular here or not? So the interesting thing with cross slot is, and I love that system. I love the guys involved with it is that it's basically a bunch of researchers trying to sell equipment. And mm-hmm. um, that that is hard to do in a market that is fairly saturated with good equipment already here in the Midwest. Now, out west, there is a very easy uh, spot for the cross slot. And they've been fairly successful there selling quite a few machines. They get farmer feedback on how to change the machines, make them work. And I I have actually had the pleasure of one of the farmers letting me plant a couple acres with a cross lot machine, and it is just an unbelievable experience to feel that machine uh, go behind the tractor and on those steep hills. And it, it's a beautiful fit. It fits very well. For years, they've been working on a system for the corn belt, and uh, they are really working hard to get a system that plants the seeds very accurately because most other systems, all the competitors have these precision planting systems on them right now. And I know that's the name of a company, but several companies built that kind of gear that can put corn seeds exactly at the right distance and spacing and all that good stuff and not have doubles and triples. Crosslot has been working on hooking up with one of those systems to get it on their gear. And um, yeah, it, it would do a fabulous job putting corn in the ground. But their strength out west is that they can get through those tough conditions like pasture renovation, very dry planting conditions. And the last number of years, dry planting conditions have not happened in the Midwest. This year is a prime example. I mean, only about 80% of the corn went into the ground because it was just too wet to get the corn in the ground. And Crosslot doesn't really show a a benefit in, in situations like that. Although I'd be very curious to see how it would do in a really, really wet soils like we had this year. And I know they're doing some demos. Um, they have some folks working out of Chicago now. And I, I would love to see what they've achieved over the last couple of years because it's such an elegant and, and pretty system. 
but again, it's it's a it's a market that's dominated by dear and corporates and and, and companies uh, that that and that have and and Great Plains is very large here too in this area that have equipment that is basically doing what what farmers want it to do. So to jump into a market like that, you need to come with something that is either a lot cheaper or a lot better, or and so they will need to prove that to to the farmers before they become successful here. Let's talk a little about cover crops. We've got um, people planting mixtures of cover crops that may be costing them $25 an acre. we got people planting cereal rye that maybe cost them $6 an acre. Uh, and this is, a, you know, this is a tough time right now for agriculture. And, uh, well, some of the people that plant the mixes are really sold on them. And then the guy who plants cereal rye is really sold on it because of the cost, less cost. But you see anything, any trends happening here or anything happening in these tough times right now? Sure. Uh, cover crops have been around for a very, very long time, but they didn't hit the mainstream probably till the 2005 to 2010, right about the time I came in back to the Midwest when it really started growing. But people had been playing with them for years, if not decades, before. Yeah, I know. I, I grew up on and, a farm in Michigan, and my dad was planting seeding cover crops in the 1940s. Then we got away absolutely, from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We got away from it. We thought we didn't have to anymore because we had uh, artificial or we had, uh, we had fertilizer. We had, uh, we, had, we had big tillage equipment. We thought we didn't need those cover crops anymore. Plus, we didn't have a bunch of animals around that, uh, that we could use that fodder from the uh, crops to anymore. So we thought we'd get away from that, but, which meant that we had our fields basically empty for seven months out of the year. Because in the Midwest, you grow only corn and beans for about five months out of the year. So for seven months, you're empty. Take two months off when it's frozen solid. You still have five months that the soil is laying around and not right. doing anything for you. And they, ought to te- they, they used to teach us that the soil was resting. Well, the soil wasn't resting. The soil was trying to recoup because well, weeds were growing on there. Mother Nature said, hey, I can't be bare. And she tried to throw something out there that we didn't like. So we were fighting that for five months. And cover crops filled a nice niche in there that if you can get a cover crop between your corn and beans, that, that works beautifully, keeping the ground covered, uh, keeping leftover nutrients from leaving the fields, uh, getting erosion under control. Be very happy for your earthworms. Uh, I've been in cover crop fields in uh, early April when there was still frost in the ground on the top and earthworms just a couple inches under the frost, the earthworms are already very active because you uh, have all these roots from the cover crops in there for them. And uh, I have seen actually snow coming off of uh, no-till fields with cover crops earlier because the soil biology is so active early in the mm. spring, much more active than in the tilled soil. So these cover crops are a good fit uh, between corn and soybeans. And now, of course, some farmers are reintroducing wheat in the rotation where you go for a, a corn, wheat, a soybean rotation. and that that seems to work uh, for these guys very well, but you're right. Uh, we had some very good years with high crop prices, and now it's, it's tough. I mean, a lot of guys are barely making any money on their corn and soy or even losing money. How can you afford to put extra cover crops on there and have another expense? But you need to really, really watch the bottom line and, and look at where all the money goes and where it's coming from. And the guys that keep using them show me their spreadsheets that the wheat control costs are much lower because they grow consistent cover crops. And so they write it off as a basically a wheat control cost. Um, their nitrogen 
needs have gone down because cover crops will carry nitrogen from one year to the next. Uh, now, you get a crazy year like now, I do not know how much nitrogen is being carried over by the cover crops. I know that everything would have been washed out without the cover crops. But, um, yeah, a lot of guys had cover crops that were way too big this spring because nobody could get in the field to terminate them. So, yeah, there are issues out there. But we have a very large group of farmers here who are committed to these cover crops and figure that they really work for them. And like a lot of this, uh, the seed guys for cover crops have been telling us for years, if a mix that you're using is getting too expensive, start changing things. Start take one species out that is getting sure. too expensive. If cowpeas get too expensive, take it out. Put something else in there that fulfills that function. So I think people are trying to get the cost of cover crops under control, but they keep using them because they see the benefits from that. Now, if you're new to it or you haven't used much of them, it's very easy to drop cover crops. But then you're back to the same issues we had uh, before cover crops came around, and you're still not making any money on corn and soy. So it's it, it's a tough one. Which reminds me of the value of this. As an Indiana farmer told me some years ago, we talked about uh, maybe with wheat taking the straw off and baling it and using it as bedding or uh, selling it or even taking corn stalks off for ethanol. And he said to me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell my no-till residue at any price. If it was 90 bucks a ton, I don't think I'd sell it because it's too, too valuable to me. Yeah, we, we've done a lot of calculations on just the nutrients that come right. out of that. And, uh, boy, the prices they pay for corn stove or, or for wheat straw are way too low. You lose more in just nutrients you will have to replace than what they're giving you for the straw. But I know some farmers that are actually doing this, they have reintroduced wheat in their rotation and then they take the wheat straw off, but then immediately after the wheat straw is off, they put these multi-mix cover crops in there. Right. Things that contain things like buckwheat and sorghum sedan grass and sunflowers, and that grow very well during uh, the summer. And these, I've seen these things get as tall as 10, 15 feet tall. It's, it's, it's baffling, especially if guys put uh, manure down. So a lot of livestock folks do that. They put wheat back in rotation so they have a place to put their manure. And then by putting those cover crops on there, the tonnage they produce is just baffling. And, again, those guys don't harvest that. They These are all summer cover crops. So they, they freeze out. They melt down over the winter. And then the next spring they come in and plant their corn into what used to be this incredible jungle, but which has melted down to not much left from material because it's all yeah. very leafy. And um, that is a great way, of course, to protect your manure and uh, make sure that that goes into the next corn crop rather than uh, disappear on you. And that's a great way to be able to drive it out in the summer when, when the conditions are fit and not have to mud it out in the fall or early spring. And um, we, we've seen several examples where these, these guys have put those multi-mixes in. And most of those mixes have like 15 or more species of cover crops in them. And, and, and like I said, it looks like a total jungle when they grow out there. Um, they have seen incredible benefits to the next co uh, corn crop. Uh, I've heard uh, numbers as 10% more corn and, and, and 5 to 10% more beans the year after. So that, that's a full year after those cover crops have been gone. So... 
some farmers have been willing to open up their books on that and, and show us the spreadsheets on, on how the finances work for it. Because those mixes are expensive. They can easily be $40 an acre. Right. And uh, but, but farmers are doing that. Now, for a lot of corn and soy farmers, it's very hard to believe you could actually put wheat in a rotation, make money, and then spend an additional 40 bucks on a cover crop. But if you if you really add it up with your uh, crop protection costs, your herbicide costs, your nitrogen costs, your, your overall fertilizer costs, these guys are making it work. And the only way they can make it work, of course, is in a full no-till system with consistent cover crops between their other crops. They're doing well. They're doing well. Now, nobody's doing great in farming right now, but those guys are staying around and doing the same thing still. Well, I think that's true. I think all of agriculture is hurting these days, but these no-tillers who are innovators probably aren't hurting as bad as the general population. I was in a field in Ohio a couple of weeks ago. It was a dairy operation about milking 700 cows, and they had a field there that had been in continuous no-till corn for 30 years, and they had put a cereal rye crop on that field for 30 years. And they were cutting they were cutting the rye at about six inches high and using it for silage. And but what was interesting is after they cut that rye and they let it grow a, a little, and they, then they came in with a manure drag line and were putting on ten thousand gallons of manure per acre. And the amazing thing was is that in reality they were rolling that rye crop, but they were doing it with the drag line. It wasn't a separate roller, it was the drag line that was actually rolling the rye. And then they were yeah. then then the corn was coming right up out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen I've seen guys do that very successful. When you have a basically a leftover cover crop and you put your manure down that holds the soil together much better and the because I've seen the drag line, or I've seen the manure tankers go through the field, and then you need a two or three tillage passes to get the soil even fit <laughs> for your crop to go in there. Right, and right. Because you, you're basically boiling up the soil. And, uh, yeah, that that seems to, I know several hog producers doing that. They have cover crops in there, come through with their drag line, and uh, that seems to work together real well. The soil holds back together after you no-till a number of years, and you have the cover crops on there. So... Yeah. Again, you're right. These are tough times. Extra expenses seem to be totally out of uh, out of the question. But from just a couple of seed guys I've talked to this spring, um, it looks like we're going to run out of cover crop seed this fall. So the people that are committed to this are really uh, committed to it. We have quite a few acres that didn't go into corn going into cover crops right now. Right. So even though people are losing, basically, for not being able to get a crop in, uh, you can only hope to have decent crop insurance on those acres with de- decent coverage. They're putting cover crops down. I hope that the government is willing to change some of the rules. You're not allowed to touch those cover crops, otherwise it's considered a crop. But we have a huge forage shortage. What better way as a nation to decide to take all these unplanted corn acres and put some forage in there and and help out that industry but yeah. I'm not an economist I'm not a politician uh, to me it makes too much sense to not do this but we'll see where we get with that um, I think some of these cover croppers even though they may not be able to get the mixes that they want are likely to 
keep doing cover crops, even if they have to use rye or even if they had to seed wheat and use it as a cover crop. They see the benefits of it. They, they're they still going to get some benefits, maybe not as much as they could if they could get a mix. I want to wrap this up with two two points I want to ask you, and then we've been talking about an hour, and it's been really fascinating. Wow. Roundup is kind of in legal trouble these days, and it will probably get it worked out. But what would happen to no-till if we had to really cut back or eliminate the use of Roundup? For a lot of farm, well, okay, let me let me uh, reiterate that I worked for Monsanto for seven years. Right, and uh, so I'm I'm very biased because I I had I read a lot of the studies around Roundup and its environmental effects and earthworm effects and health effects and all that good stuff. So I'm just kind of sitting here shaking my head about all this stuff around mm-hmm. Roundup. It would be hard for Roundup to disappear for most farmers. But um, like a lot of my experienced no-tillers that use a lot of cover crops, they they can find ways around that. Uh, The sad thing is we'll probably end up with reusing some of the older chemistries that are not as good for the environment and maybe even have worse health impacts than people claim Roundup has. And they will have to rely on some of those. But I have some farmers that are really moving away from herbicides and mass, and, and they... They use very little or no herbicides. It's very hard to do, and I don't think the majority of the farmers will be able to do that. So for most folks, the disappearance of a Roundup would be pretty detrimental, in my opinion. Right. Let's go back. The last thing I want to ask you, let's go back to the Netherlands when you're growing up. What's going to happen with no-till in Europe? Well, Europe is a very diverse place. In the Netherlands, I don't think no-till will gain an awful lot of traction because there is no need for it. And uh, the, the, the mulberry plowing on 80% organic matter soils seems to work. And as long as the climate doesn't change too much and it stays cold and rainy, you don't lose a lot of organic matter content and you can keep it up. But places like Spain, where we have very similar conditions to the United States, more intense rains, more rolling land, uh, no-till for a long time there was grown by leaps and bounds. They had very strong no-till associations. And honestly, I don't know where those guys have been in the last number of years, whether it's still growing out there. But there's a huge place for no-till under those climatic conditions in Southern Europe, in my opinion. Yeah. Just like there is in Argentina and Brazil, where it's, of course, grown dramatically, much more so than in the U.S. And a lot of that has to do with how the government handles those kind of things. Uh, in, in Brazil and, and Australia, there is basically no government to help the farmers, and the farmers go to the system that makes them the most money, and there seems to be no-till and things like cover crops. Well, Hans, this has been a really fascinating uh, hour. I think I know a lot about no-till. I learned some new things that I didn't know. Did we miss anything you'd like to talk about? No, it's always a real pleasure to talk to you, Frank. And again, I really appreciate what you guys have done for the no-till movement in the United States and thus for the client, for the for the environment and, and for the bottom line of a lot of farmers. Please well, uh, hope that the next generation keeps up the good work. Thank you for saying that, but it's been fascinating and it's probably the greatest experience I've ever had in my whole life is being involved in the no-till movement. So thanks very much much and we'll see you soon down the road take care thank you sir have a great okay. day before we wrap up this episode here's frank once more answering an inquiry about the adoption of no-till in the u.s 
The reader question this time is uh, somebody asking what states have the most no-till acres and what states have the biggest percentage of no-till. Well, the number one state with total acres of no-till is Kansas with, with 11.2 million acres, followed by Nebraska with 10.2 million acres. Third is Iowa, and surprisingly, Montana is fourth with 8 million acres, and then rounding out fifth place is North Dakota with 7.7 .7 million acres. In the Corn Belt, Illinois for no-till acres stands in seventh place, and Indiana is in eighth place. Now, when you look at the states with the highest percent of no-till acres among all the cropped acres, Tennessee is the highest at 79%. This is followed by Maryland with 74%, then Virginia, then Montana, and finally Kentucky rounds up the top five with 68%. Nationwide, 77% of crop acres are being no-tilled based on this information that came from the 2017 Census of Agriculture. There are 104.4 million acres of no-till in the United States in the year 2017. Thank you to Frank Lesseter and Hans Koch for today's conversation about conservation farming in the U.S. and abroad. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillconference.com to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <music>